Good morning, viewers and listeners. Welcome back to the latest episode of the Free Marketeers podcast. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Uh, the 1st of June, level three of lockdown in South Africa. I hope you're all enjoying your newfound freedoms that you aren't going too crazy out there, but there we are. Uh, viewers and listeners, I've got an incredibly special episode for you today. I'm joined by one of my personal inspirations, someone who I find uh, illuminating, interesting, funny, creative, someone who is pushing the boundaries of classical liberal thought, trying to advance the right ideas in the world. And we need the right ideas more now than ever before. I think in a pandemic is the, the most appropriate time to fight for the right ideas for freedom and individual liberty. So today I'm joined by Johan Norberg. Johan, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for the invite and thanks for the kind words. <laughs> no, no, uh, they're very much justified. Just to give a little bit of background for the viewers and listeners who don't know about Mr. Norberg, um, he is a Swedish author and historian of ideas devoted to promoting economic globalization. He is also the author of In Defense of Global Capitalism and Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. Since 15 March 2007, he has been a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and in January 2017, he became the executive editor at Free to Choose Media. For those of you who like spending time on YouTube, I can highly recommend his series, Dead Wrong, published every week, I think on Wednesdays, if I'm correct. Something like that. <laughs> okay, um, just to get us started, I thought we would get a bit of your perspective on the lockdown, lockdown living in Sweden. Sweden has been held up, I think, by those of us in classically liberal circles as an example of how governments should behave in a pandemic. Um, but I thought it would be good to get a perspective from someone who has actually been there on the ground. Yes, Sweden has been the odd outlier during this pandemic. At first, we thought China would be the outlier, shutting down its society and mm -hmm. forcing people to stay at home and not even allowing them to meet their relatives and so on. But eventually, almost every country came around to the Chinese authoritarian uh, experiment, mm -hmm. uh, and Sweden didn't. Uh, in Sweden, it's the one place where we have not shut down schools, uh, restaurants, uh, public transportation, um, libraries, gyms, and, and so on. We have some regulations. We're not allowed to meet in groups of 50 or more people during the uh, pandemic. But apart from that, most of it, most of the social distancing has been voluntary. Right. So the government has recommended people to do not travel, do not go to work if you can avoid it, uh, which means that most people do avoid it. Most Swedes have abided by those that voluntary distancing because we don't want to spread the virus more than we have to. We don't want to uh, expose ourselves and our loved ones to the disease. But it gives some room to local knowledge and to individual needs. So if I really have to do something, I can do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think if that works out, this could be the best of both worlds in a way. We have social distancing, but we also do not clamp down on civil liberties and we do not destroy the economy and the society more than we have to. It seems a bit of a, a scalpel slash nuanced approach, whereas I feel a lot of governments have taken the hammer approach, definitely in South Africa. From the beginning, it's been almost overnight, we've had our civil liberties stripped away. And before the lockdown, South Africa's GDP growth was estimated maybe between one to 2%. Now, I can't even imagine what, it, you know, what negative it's going to be. We had over 10 million unemployed people in the country. To think about all the small businesses that have closed down now because of the harsh lockdown is, is quite scary to think about. I think 
there's definitely something to be said for governments taking a, a rational and fact-based approach to these things and also giving their people a sense of ownership, not just assuming that the state should decide for everyone how to live and how to act. Yeah, I think that the problem is that most governments don't trust their citizens sure. and they think that they have to use the hammer. They have to find them or, or even imprison them if they don't follow the rules. Well, the thing is, if you look at mobile data from most countries, it turns out that people started with social distancing before the governments enforced it. So it seems to suggest that people listen to information, they listen to the news, and they understand that they have to change some of their behavior. Uh, so it might just be um, that um, they, they went too far and distrusted people too much. What do you think um, heading out of, of lockdown for Sweden now? Is it sort of you know, in terms of case numbers, that sort of thing, is it pretty much, is the pandemic almost over? That kind of thing, is that the wrong way to think about it? I'm just thinking of New Zealand where, of course, it's an island, so they have managed to really eliminate the virus. I think only one person still has it. So there it's been possible to really cut it off at it, at the source, which was, you know, traveling and that kind of thing. But what do you think for the next few weeks for Sweden? How does it look? Yeah, I think New Zealand might be the only that could really eradicate the disease. The problem then is how will they ever get back to any kind of normal relation right. with the rest of the world where the mm -hmm. virus exists? And, and that's something that has to be taken into consideration as well. What Swedish authorities uh, early on said and the government is that there's no way to avoid this really. We can delay yes. cases and deaths, but once we open up again, we will have them eventually and no, no country can be power and in that case you'll have ruined the society and and uh, you will probably kill many more people Since a couple of weeks back, we have fewer people in intensive care day by day, on, on average at least. Uh, we have a, um, a newly built field hospital in Stockholm with room for hundreds of patients and for um, and many intensive care units. And that has never been taken into use. That was just in case uh, that, that we needed it now. Sorry about that uh, break in the interruption, uh, Johan. I believe you were mentioning the field hospital that was built in, in Stockholm almost uh, you know, very quickly, and that's now standing empty, but it is probably done as a precautionary measure. Yes, and it has never received any patients, and now the politicians in Stockholm are suggesting that it's time to dismantle it uh -huh. because we're beyond the peak now of cases. And, and that's good news because it tells us that uh, Sweden managed to flatten the curve, uh, not suppress the disease because that's uh, 
that was never the strategy and the idea was that that's not going to be possible because then we'll get a peak later on instead but we managed to flatten the curve to the extent that the healthcare system always managed to deal with the cases and give them intensive care who could benefit from it and we always had a 20% or 30% excess capacity or something like that and the fact that this uh, field hospital was never taken into use seems to seems to be proof of that so that suggests that we're slowly now beginning to can begin to open up society and even change some of the recommendations of, of social distancing as well in terms of sweden's healthcare um you know the healthcare system um yeah I, i'm guessing that for a lot of people the, the conception or misconception would be that because it's a scandinavian country it's all highly socialized and centralized and that kind of thing does that apply in, in sweden was it really for the the government to decide okay well you know we need to take these precautions or is there more scope for private healthcare? Yeah, the Swedish healthcare system has changed a lot in the last two decades. So uh, first of all, it's not a government run system. Okay. It's not a national system. It's based on the regions. The different Swedish regions are in charge of their healthcare system with some then rules and subsidies sprinkled on top from mm -hmm. the central side. And there's lots of room for private healthcare as well and private healthcare providers within a mostly government financed healthcare system. And I think it's too early to say anything specific on which okay. kinds of healthcare systems manage to deal with this better than others. But, but so far, I think it's fair to say that the Swedish healthcare system managed to be flexible and rapidly scale up the number of intensive care units because compared to other European countries, we had fewer care beds than I think almost all other European Union countries. But in a very short time, they managed to double that number. Uh, so, and, and I mean, that's the best thing you can hope for in a crisis. You never know which kind of crisis you will face. So the solution is not to have an excess capacity here or there. It is to be flexible and rapidly steer resources into the place where you need it. I think the pandemic... Uh... You know, no matter how bad a pandemic is, I think this one especially will provide an excuse for the South African government to implement their nationalized uh, vision of healthcare that they have that's been floating around for a few years now, the national health insurance, so that it's called. Not that there's any money, any room in the budget anymore, but I'm sure they'll find a way maybe through printing some money because we all know that never results in any serious problem. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about just the global economy a lot of your work is focused on globalization the importance of trade and being connected um maybe you know the the, the way in which specialization lowers costs of goods and services for a lot of people um a lot of i think there's a tendency now both before the pandemic and afterwards that countries are going to be more insular look more inward uh, and i'm concerned about the rise of nationalism and that kind of thing but if you could just cover a little bit about where you think the world was before covid and maybe some a little bit of forecasting that you think going forward. Yeah. Yeah, this is my main worry right now because uh, the world before the pandemic, even though this is for some reason controversial, that world was fantastic, <laughs> at least compared to everything else that we've ever had in, yes. in human history. You know, life expectancy since 1950 increased from 48 years around the world to 72 years, mm -hmm. which means that every day since 1950, we increased our life expectancy by eight hours. <laughs> it's like we 
it's like we never slept. <laughs> so we got a, a good night's sleep back in increased life expectancy every day uh, for, for 70 years. And that's based on economic progress and technological progress and specifically spreading this across borders so that more economies could make use of ideas and technologies developed elsewhere. The global death rate for infectious disease has halved in just the last two decades. So that tells you something about the success story of yes. an increasingly globalized economy based on free markets and uh, free trade. And, and, and the greatest example of, of this is uh, the uh, poverty rates around the world. Uh, the fact that since 1990, we reduced the number in extreme poverty by around 130,000 people every day. That's astonishing. It's, it's the greatest thing that has ever happened to mankind. But it didn't happen automatically. It was no. based on this um, transfer of um, uh, technology and knowledge, and that was based on more human freedoms and on free trade. Now I fear, based on both history of pandemics and of the debate that we're having right now, is that lots of people will be afraid of the rest of the world. They will talk about the danger of fragile uh, supply chains, uh, of being dependent on supplies from other countries. Shouldn't we be more self-sufficient and shut our economy behind walls and tariff barriers? And, and that's, it's likely that we're moving in that direction and that's incredibly dangerous. Uh, and if, if you want evidence of that, I would just point you to the last two months we just shut down the global economy for two months. This is like we're living in a, a kind of a, the utopia of a bright wing populist combined with <laughs> radical environmentalists. Nobody's flying, no one is moving across borders, no trade, no capitalist exploitation. And you know what? In just two months, we have a global depression. We have increased uh, mass unemployment. We will see much higher poverty and, and hunger around the world. Why would anyone want to make this mm. permanent? And when you look at some very basic, very simple uh, attempts of uh, forecasting what's going to happen uh, now in the world, if we will see just a 10% reduction in global incomes around the world as a result of the lockdowns of more isolated economies, then extreme poverty will increase in two years from around 8% of the world population to around, well, more than 12%. Uh, and and if it gets worse, if we have a 20% reduction, and this is all based, I think, on the policies that governments will implement afterwards, if we have a 20% reduction on average, it will be double from 8% to 16% of the world population. That's a terrible, terrible uh, toll on, on human lives, on human health and uh, our health. Just one aspect I wanted to highlight there, you mentioned, you know, of government shutting down the economy. So one thing I've tried to write about and that we've tried to illustrate is that, that an economy, it's, it's a lot more than just the numbers and the profit margins and these sorts of things. It's a deeply interconnected, almost organism, if you were. And it's not a simple case of switching, switching an economy on or off. This isn't going to be a case of, okay, we shut it down for three months, so we'll get back to where we were in three months, right? Exactly. That's a very good point. It's like lots of people think we can just uh, put society and the economy in some sort of suspended animation and we'll just revive it and go back to where we were. Uh, that's not how we work because things change. Meanwhile, we change uh, and our, our 
interests, our needs, our, the demand. It's not the same kind of uh, jobs that will and, and goods and services that will be in demand. People are moving meanwhile and then they're doing other things. Uh, the most basic thing that you can see is that, yeah, perhaps if we're lucky, we'll have some sort of <sighs> getting back to the demand of uh, manufactured goods. We will still need clothes and, and uh, cars and so on. But you know, mm -hmm. the uh, the coffee that I usually took while I went down to the office every morning, I'm not going to buy um, 60 coffees in, in a coffee cups in a row <laughs> the day I get back. So something is lost and will have been lost forever. Uh, Maybe you'll need all that so, coffee when you're starting up again. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a good point. Uh, 60 coffee cups, that's a, that's a bare minimum. Uh, but it means that... Um, Things are changing meanwhile, and people are going to have to find a way to sustain their lives and their local economy while this goes on as well. And so, so I think we're going to need lots of restructuring once this is over. Oh. We're going to have to, uh, the, the businesses that have been incredibly successful in rerouting supply chain and finding new transport routes during very difficult circumstances, making the best use of the workers who are still left in the workforce and so on, uh, they will obviously not go back to exactly the same kind of life afterwards. So trying to revive it in exactly the same way, I think is a, is a great mistake. We're gonna have to instead be quick to try to transfer labor and capital into the parts of the economy that actually functions, where there is demand, where they can scale up and, and where they can find more employment uh, and, and expand employment. So it's, Again, it's about flexibility rather than just trying to think of this as a static economy and we'll revive it just the way it was. One of the biggest uh, misconceptions I've felt, you know, in my own sort of trying to learn about the, the ideas and the philosophy of, of free, markets, free markets and that sort of thing and the impact thereof on people's lives is just how in South Africa and Africa generally, throughout the last decades and maybe even centuries, there have just been so many barriers to trade and to economic growth. So looking a bit forward, you know, in terms of capital flow and opportunity, surely it makes sense for emerging economies such as those predominantly in Africa and other er developing areas of the world that they remove lots of barriers to trade and, and to growth. Yes. You know, trade is just like a machine. Um, in which you put whatever you have and, and on the other side you get what you want yes. and what you need. It's the, had this been an invention, everybody would have considered it the best invention ever <laughs> because it allows us to, you know, you, you can't do everything and uh, it's dependent on local climate, the knowledge, the uh, availability of capital and what have you, but you can be good in something. Mm -hmm. uh, you can produce that efficiently and you'll just put it into the machine and then you'll get what you need at the other at the other end of it and, and and that's what everybody has to keep in mind it's not something mysterious it's just a way to maximize your own efforts to make the most of your ideas and your own work and the moment you put up a tariff barrier the moment you have less regional specialization it's just a way of making your own work less valuable mm -hmm. to yourself uh, and it's always hurts me that the economies that need it the most, uh, low and middle income economies that need to grow, that they 
shut the, shoot themselves in the foot by denying themselves the ability to specialize and to trade trade across borders. That would be really the way to um, get a, a good shot, vitamin shot in, in the arm after mm -hmm. this crisis, if you want to get back to it in, in different ways, yes. uh, because it's a way of having this flexibility that I talked about to rapidly transfer capital and labor into the sectors where you could be productive. Uh, but it's also a way to quickly step up to create economies of scale. You might not be able to do that back home because the home market is too small. And specifically, it's too small when you have this in ten, in rapid increase in the unemployment and in declining econ incomes. But if you have a larger market, then all neighboring countries and local, regional uh, the trade networks in Africa, you can all specialize in something and create economies of scale. It would be the best way forward. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the impact of technology on all this. So I know for a lot of people, they're, they're worried about everything moving digital and, you know, we're doing everything over Zoom now. So in the future, it's just going to be the few of us who are connected in this way and doing this work and, you know, that kind of thing. But many people are going to lose their jobs to ever increasing technology and, and mechanization and that sort of thing. Um, just a little bit of your thoughts on that sort of that line of thinking. It seems to me very zero sum, very lose lose. Uh, way of thinking about uh, technological progress. Yeah, and we hear this again and again. People mm -hmm. have always said that new technologies, that's going to take the jobs and then there will be no jobs left. You know, the first guy who, who used an umbrella to <laughs> shield himself from the rain in uh, London in, in the 18th century, he was attacked by people, uh, both because it looked ridiculous, but also, you know, the coaches and with uh, horses and coaches, yes. uh, the drivers of those, they attacked him, tried to run him over, spat on him because they thought now if people can shield themselves against the rain themselves, they will never use our coaches again and we'll be out of jobs and nothing will ever happen. Um, that has always been with us, this fear that the, the old jobs, yeah, some of them do disappear. Mm -hmm. So will there be nothing left? Yeah, that's True, nothing will be left if there's no more human imagination, no more human needs, a totally static future. And in that case, yeah, then we don't have to work, so <laughs> why bother? Uh, but, but the thing is, what technology does, it's that it, it's complementary to our own jobs. What you can see is that, yes, lots of jobs have obviously disappeared, but it's not that the computer took the job from a worker. It's that workers with computers took jobs from workers without computers right. because the computers make us more productive. It makes it possible for us to leave some of the routine work uh, to, to this thing over here. And then we can specialize in what we hopefully do better, mm -hmm. the kind of human touch, the interaction, analysis, uh, presentation, um, and design, imagination, and so on. And I don't think there's that we'll ever see any kind of uh, efficient demand for for that people say that will we will have it but it's still the case that i can never reach anyone on the phone when i complain about my bag being lost at the airport <laughs> or something is not working with a zoom connection there's no human there anywhere which seems to suggest that it's the other way around humans are too expensive mm -hmm. for us and and we we were gonna 
we constantly want more humans to sort of add to the technology uh, that we're having. So the key question in the future is not, is technology gonna take our jobs, but which kind of jobs will we create when, when we're going digital? And then we're back to the key issue about flexibility, open mm -hmm. economies where we can rapidly switch and change so that we don't keep all our workers in the stagnant parts of the economy where we see a declining demand for jobs, mm -hmm. but instead retrain and move to the sectors where we have demand for them. I'm glad you mentioned the, the point on, on flying and aviation. I, I, I'm very worried about the next time we're gonna be able to fly again, and that's one of my uh, passions. So I'm, I'm glad that you've mentioned that in passing. <laughs> um, no, that's I a real shame. Yeah, it, it really, really is. And you think about all the jobs and, and all that's all that kind of thing that's lost in the aviation industry. I, I, I shudder to think about how many airlines are going to close down because of this. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about a phrase that I, I, I don't want to assume that you coined it. I mean, I want to give you credit for it, but maybe you can tell me if you read it somewhere else. But you shared a graph recently, and I'll link to it in the description for, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube. Um, it's a graph about extreme poverty as a share of world population and just progressively how the era of globalization as it's gone longer that that share of extreme poverty has been going down and down and down and then we hit end of 2019 2020 and it goes straight up like that so and this this concept yeah. of deindustrialization uh, because of course for a lot of people they have this idyllic conception of a few centuries ago, things were all nice and clean. There weren't factories, there weren't roads, there weren't all these things. Things were better when we weren't industrialized. So now maybe some of them will be excited to hear you talk about deindustrialization. But I'd like you to talk a bit about the link there between extreme poverty and, and industrialization. Yeah. Well, if you're poor, it's because you lack something. You lack the money and resources. Uh, but the reason you do it is probably because you lack uh, education, skills, technologies, or access to uh, those opportunities, access to uh, technologies, to management know-how, to uh, markets to uh, which to, to sell your goods. And that's, those are all things that industrialization and globalization has given people. Um, and the more they get, the richer uh, they get. That's why we've seen the greatest era of poverty reduction in the past few decades before, because more countries uh, got this. And, uh, and that's, it's more than an economic concept. It's also, yes, people say that, look, now it's nice and it's clean and there's no pollution uh, now that we're not flying anymore. But you, you know what? we are going to need resources to clean the planet. Yes. This is a very short-term fix, and it's not a good fix, uh, because at the end of all this, we've shut down the world, and the forecast is that at the end of the year, we've only reduced greenhouse gases, uh, gas emissions by around 8%, <laughs> apparently. Which tells you that, okay, to reach the Paris Climate Accords, we're going to need one pandemic a year until 2030. Uh, so we're going to need lots of poverty and lots of starvation to reach uh, the, the climate goals mm -hmm. if we're trying to do it by starving ourselves out of, of industrialization. Uh, it clearly shows that those emissions, they were never based on sort of less, a little bit less consumption or travel. It's in our basic infra societal infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And to deal with that, we're going to need 
we, we can get rid of that as well, but that is gonna take green technologies, new fuels, new energy sources, and that's costly. It's gonna cost us a couple of hundred billion dollars. And you know, the first thing that's not on the wish list of anyone who's losing his job, is not able to sustain his family, not put food on the table. The first thing on that wish list is not another 100 billion in clean technologies <laughs> that might make a difference 50 years from now. Poverty is the worst thing for pollution, for all kinds of human needs to solve any kind of human problem. We need more resources, we need better technologies and we need human wealth. So this era that we might be entering of, of deindustrialization and deglobalization in many places will be horrible for people's incomes, jobs, uh, for poverty, but it's also going to hurt us in all other places in uh, our ability to deal with environmental challenges and with any kind of threat that might come at us because the next threat is going to be unpredictable. It could be something entirely different. It could be a, a tsunami, it could be a flood, it could be a meteorite, it could be uh, a large-scale cyber attack, what have you. The one thing we know is that we need um, freedoms for people to, to deal, to, to change and to switch resources to deal with that particular threat. And we need lots and lots of knowledge, technology and wealth. And nothing but industrialization and globalization can bring us that. I think you're, uh, you and I are singing from the same uh, hymn sheet there. I think just maybe philosophically, one thing I've been worried about is how the threat of COVID-19, people have very much uh, gone with the view of we need to eliminate risk as much as possible. So if freedom in any way involves risk, you know, those freedoms are to be done away with. So just in wrapping up, I thought I would give you a chance to talk a little bit about that aspect, you know, philosophically, psychologically, if there's anything you want to mention, then also you know, again, putting you on the on the spot here with your forecasting, but just what you think the next five or 10 years will look like, you know, you can give us a 50% certainty or a 70% certainty, however much you want to stick your neck out. Uh, well, thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I would say that um, that concept of risk uh, is, it's incredibly important, I think, to to understand it because every time we face a crisis, people have this tendency to react with our stone age brains. Right. And there's nothing wrong with stone age brains. You know, uh, we all have them and they got us this far. So mm -hmm. there's gotta be something good in there. But unfortunately it's traditional way of dealing with threats and risks is to gather around, uh, hide in the tribe and throw stones at the threat because mm -hmm. the threat is usually a predator or another tribe, or to hide sort right. of in, in the cave. So it's a flight or fight or flight uh, instinct that we've got there. And unfortunately, that's how we deal with modern threats in a complex uh, economy as well. The first thing is that we want to hide in the collective. We want a strong man or a big government to mm. just protect us, take care of us and keep the others at bay and throw rocks at them tariff barriers or even attack them, uh, minorities or foreigners or other yep. governments and so on. Unfortunately, in a very complex world, the uh, solution is not to kill others, it's to, I, I shouldn't say unfortunately, <laughs> but, it, um, but it's difficult for their Stone Age brains to comprehend. Yes. It's not to 
kill the other guy. It's to find a way to cooperate with mm -hmm. them and look at what knowledge do you have? What technology do you have? What do I have? How can we share and, and, uh, and exchange so that we both can benefit from this? Not to invade our neighbors, but see, can they contribute to finding a vaccine against COVID-19, mm -hmm. uh, for example? How can we make sure that we get ventilators that you produce and will have protective equipment to going over to your side? That's incredibly difficult to comprehend when we're panicking right. because then we just want this immediate protection. We want the strong man to point us in the right way. Mm -hmm. The risk is, of course, that he might point us in the wrong way or he might have his own interest uh, first at hand. So the solution is rather millions of eyeballs looking at the problem mm -hmm. and working hard to try to get a, a fix uh, around uh, this problem. Um, that saves us, and we know that if we study history, if we study economics, if we study psychology, mm -hmm. but it doesn't fit with our fight or flight instinct. And, and that's why I think we often make mistakes uh, in times of, of crisis, uh, whether it be an economic crisis or a pandemic or a natural right. disaster or something like that. The thing with risk is that we then want to regulated out of existence but then we regulate freedom out of existence yep. and we regulate the multitude of eyeballs out of existence and we leave everything in the hands of a tiny group of people and the only thing that happens then is that we lose knowledge we lose local knowledge and we lose individual creativity and we lose the solution to the problem so it feels good it looks good you'll get the votes but you won't solve the problem and, 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 and that's the thing. We're gonna, we have to understand that risk will always be there and uh, that we need human freedom to make sure that we take that risk into our knowledge base, into our calculation, rather than trying to sort of pretend that it's not there, which is what we're doing when we regulate it out of our existence. So as for the future, uh, where uh, are we going? So how, how long a time frame did you say? Five years, ten years? Yeah, let's let's do ten years. Yeah, I'm a little bit pessimistic. Mm -hmm. uh, I can see that the backlash that was already there against mm -hmm. some of the open world, open societies, open trade, it will be reinforced by this. People will be afraid of other countries, of foreigners, of trade. They will want to be protected a little bit more by governments telling us what to do. That's a natural reaction. We've always seen this after pandemics before. So it would be strange if that didn't happen this time around as well. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we're also in this natural experiment where we've mm. locked down the world and the economy. And it's pretty awful. Yeah. And we'll see an increase in poverty and chronic undernourishment around the world. So I think when we reflect on this a little bit more, when we count to 10, when we get out of the panic and analyze the situation, we're all, we'll also see that, look, this whole thing with open markets and specialization wasn't so bad <laughs> after all. And perhaps we only understood its value once we lost it. Yeah. So I think both of these trends are in a way going to be enforced or both of these um, tendencies in public opinion are going to be enforced and we'll see an angry debate between mm. these two sides. If I then, I'm going to, so, so then it's difficult to predict because it depends on what you and I do, whether we <laughs> uh, fall silent and sort of 
the debate is too difficult, so let's just yeah. stay away from it for a while. Then we'll lose and the world will be pretty bad in the future. But if we step up, then we might at least mitigate some of the, the horrors that we might have in store for us otherwise. What I would say is that if I'm trying to guess according to what, what's happening in the debate right now is that we might not see the complete of uh, trade of this era of globalization, but we might see some sort of protectionism from through the back door. Right. More like people are going to say, we need a little bit more of self-sufficiency. Perhaps everything shouldn't be sort of dependent on market forces and global trade. Perhaps we need a protective group, protected group of companies here that we benefit with subsidies and trade uh, tariffs. Uh, but at the same time, if we're giving them a helping hand, we should bind them, tie them up hand and foot because we have to tell them what to do and we're going to have to uh, make sure that we in charge get some of the profits, mm -hmm. the monopoly profits that they're getting. So some sort of traditional historical uh, uh, 1970s industrial policy mm -hmm. thing. That's the thing that I'm worried about in, in lots of countries around the world. So um, uh, it's, it's time to brush up on our history of why picking winners failed the last time, because mm -hmm. people will say that this time is different. Oh, I, I agree very much. Um, I think you've you've managed that particularly sticky question quite well. I I've, I like to think that you know, those of us you know who believe in these ideas, there probably hasn't been a better time to be alive. Um, we can now fight for these ideas. We can push for them. We can put for push for the right kind of reforms and implementation and. Yes, of course, it's daunting, but this is a great opportunity that, you know, will affect our lives and our children and grandchildren for, for many decades and maybe even centuries to come. So either rise to the challenge, as you say, it's scary and daunting, or we, you know, or we'll fall back into the, the bad policies and ideas of the past. But I think I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful about this, this forced experiment in socialism that people will realize it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's not all uh, equality and, and uh, you know, nice feelings and that sort of thing. It's, uh, it's actual, it has actual effects when you remove people's freedom. It's not just philosophy that we talk about. When you take away people's ability to trade and interact, it has a seriously negative effect on the quality of life. So that's what I'm hopeful for, that people will learn these lessons. But on that note, I will wrap up. Uh, Johan, thank you so, so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. As I said, uh, getting to talk to you is for me a, a great privilege so i very much value your time thanks a lot this was great fun uh viewers and listeners i hope you've enjoyed this episode and our continued uh lockdown series as it were who knows for how long the lockdown will go in south africa with the government not really giving us much indication of their own deadlines and expectations but all we can do is keep on moving forward as best as we can if you value the work that we do at the fmf please consider donating we rely on your support and we greatly value it please like this video please share it on your different social media platforms please also subscribe to our youtube channel a reminder that our podcasts are now available on platforms such as Spotify and Google Podcasts. If you're listening there, please also subscribe on those respective platforms and please share the links all over as well. But for now, I will say uh, enjoy your first week of lockdown level three freedom. Uh, stay safe out there. Uh, do your best in, in your interactions with people around you. And we'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye.